Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Professor Peter Chung is the Sir Hugh Devine Chair of Surgery at St Vincent's Hospital and the Head of the Departments of Surgery at St Vincent's Hospital and the University of Melbourne. Peter has almost 30 years experience in research, teaching and medical leadership and is a distinguished surgical leader who has dedicated his career to improving treatments for musculoskeletal diseases, especially in orthopaedic reconstruction and oncology. Welcome to the Orthopod, Professor Chung. Yeah, good morning, Liam. How are you? I'm good, thank you. That's good. So as a medical student at the University of Melbourne, I think it's really cool that you've gone from being one of them yourself to now the head of the Department of Surgery at the same university. Can you tell me about your experiences as a medical student at the University of Melbourne, including whether or not when you were studying at Parkville, you ever thought you might go on to have an office there as a chief of surgery? Well, I came through uh, my medical career at the time when lots of the doyens of modern medicine and surgery existed. And they had a huge role as they retired to become part of the teaching workforce. So I was heavily influenced by the likes of Professor Bradley, neurosurgeon, other people who were into embryology, renal physicianry, cardiology, John Clareborough, who was one of the first people ever do a bypass surgery in Melbourne and started, in fact, the very first cardiac surgical ward in Victoria. So those sorts of people really influenced me and inspired me in ways that can be subliminal at times, but other times overtly because you're seeing them pass on their skills, as it were. And it was at a time when uh, sort of master-apprentice-type relationships existed in training programs as well as the manner in which teaching occurred. So uh, it, it was a wonderful time to see the birth of a lot of research and new technology come through. It didn't occur to me at that time that I would be anything other than a a doctor. It it didn't uh, touch my horizon that there was, you know, the future that has occurred would, would be there. And that certainly at that time was not an aim of mine. So one of the essential requirements of being a doctor is keeping up to date with medical research so that you can treat your patients most effectively following the current guidelines. However, there are clinician researchers such as yourself who are doctors that actually conduct the research which forms those treatment guidelines whilst also providing direct patient care to people with the particular disease that you research. Do you think it makes you a better doctor if you're treating a disease and research it at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, No question in my mind. Uh, What it does is it first of all places the evidence for what I do every day, every treatment, It places the evidence directly in front of me. And so I'm measuring off the justification of my decisions on the evidence that's provided. But being a researcher allows me to test current dicta, current dogma about why we do things, and to design trials to look at the veracity of the statements that are being made. And I think that's a that's a, a unique situation where people who invoke care can also understand it, dissect out the mechanisms, and get a clearer view of why we do things. And there's no question that with the right evidence, the right patient gets treated in the right way at the right time. 
So if I want to have a successful career as a specialist doctor, should I consider becoming a clinician researcher as well? I would strongly encourage everybody to become a clinician researcher. It's only by asking and wondering and inquiring about what we do every day that makes us sharpen what we actually achieve. It's the quest for the evidence, it's the debate of the strength of the evidence, and it's how you use the evidence that makes us all better doctors. I think some of the greatest advancements have been because of serendipity. But what people have subsequently done with that has changed the face of care. If you, if you look at Fleming and penicillin, if you look at someone who had this crazy idea that if you've got a blockage in the heart, just unblock it and you, you, you have bypass surgery. But the, the whole idea of putting the heart on bypass to do that surgery was thought to be madness. John Charnley wanted to put artificial joints in. He was run out of London for doing that. How could you possibly achieve that? But he had a view, he had a rationale, he had evidence of how articulations worked. He understood tribology, which is wear and movement of surfaces, and how an engineer might apply it to the human situation. And so I think having the inquiring mind and then the opportunities to continue the inquiry through more formal research sets the scene for a very, very big and promising career as well as the welfare of medicine per se. For a traditional academic, the path toward a successful career would be expected to include something like a completion of a doctorate. But does that same thing apply for clinicians? Well, that is a question that many clinicians, both very junior, uh, student doctors, all the way to credentialed surgeons and physicians would ask me. And the answer is yes. And the reason why I say yes is because it gives you a goal. It gives you a purpose. It means for the time that you will spend, let's spend it in a measured, planned and strategic way such that at the end of that, you gain something from it. You gain a recognition of achievement that bodes well for your future in a career in academics, let's say. But at the same time, it, it means you have followed the teachings of rigor, of proper methodology, and your peers, your examiners, have attested to that. And that's signified by the credential of a doctorate. And there are many different doctorates you could have, but I think that's the highest level. A doctorate is the highest level of research that you can achieve. And what it means is you've pushed yourself. You've set your goals and you've achieved. And you get a bit of street cred as well. Oh, definitely. I think credibility is really, really important. Uh, in, in medicine, it's very easy to sound authoritative. It's the manner in which you speak. It's the big words and jargons that we churn out all the time. And by being a clinician, that brings a certain level of gravitas. I think having a doctorate, a research doctorate associated with your clinical side means you speak with far more authority to opine on the methods, to opine on the quality of data that you are talking about. And that in itself means that what you say is far more credible. 
So going back to your career as a, as a doctor and now as a clinician researcher, you're an orthopedic surgeon and you do specialize in, in soft tissue and bone tumors, sarcoma. So I was wondering, was it research that was what drove you to become interested in bone and soft tissue tumors? Uh, no, it was actually the other way. I, out of serendipity, was offered an opportunity to do orthopedics. My mind was set in another field altogether. And when I went down the path of orthopedics, in my very first year of training, we provided uh, clinical support to the Peter McCallum Cancer Center for the management of bone tumors. And at that time, it became apparent that our understanding and our knowledge of how these tumors should be treated was lacking. And this was being played out in the clinical arena. So I set myself to going away learning more from the major centers overseas and bringing that knowledge back. But in order for me to understand the pathology of orthopedic tumors, I needed to know the normal physiology of bone and muscle and tendon. And that was the basis of my doctorate, which was to look at the regulation of osteoblast differentiation. What made these cells tick? What, what was the normal situation? What sort of factors made them behave in different ways. And I felt that that basic knowledge of the very tissue I was interested in um, seemed to be germane to the whole journey of now understanding what made them pathologic and therefore how would I manage them and what would I expect their behavior to be and could that help inform the strategies that I used later. You, you mentioned understanding the cellular basis which has then formed some research work that you've done Another way to inform research is, is through the use of data, such as the SMART registry, which is the St. Vincent's Melbourne Arthroplasty Registry. The founder of modern management, Peter Drucker, famously said, what gets measured gets managed. And this is true for healthcare as well, when you use these sort of patient databases like the SMART registry. So I'd like to know what was involved in setting up and maintaining this registry. Yeah, so my interest in the registry came when I spent time both in Sweden um, at the University Hospital in Lund, as well as at the Mayo Clinic in the United States. And in both of these institutions where I worked, I had access to population-based databases and registries. And the collection of data, I thought, was just what one did, because that's what they did. But then we started to use it to answer questions. For example, what type of tumors would come back if I used different types of surgical margins? And because every tumor that was resected had recorded what sort of margin was used and which of those tumors subsequently went on to develop a local recurrence, I was able to correlate the quality of the margin with the risk of recurrence. And it became very clear to me then the power of data and then be able to dissect out different elements from that data because there was so much data. The same thing was applied when I was at Mayo Clinic. They had a number of databases there, not only the tumor databases, but also the arthroplasty databases. And when I came back to Australia, I felt that one of the, the big things we had as a healthy, surviving, aging population was the requirement for joint replacement. And it seemed clear to me that if we collected as much information as we possibly could on joint replacement, we may be able to develop strategies of performing them better with better outcomes. And that was the basis of setting up 
the St. Vincent's Melbourne Arthroplasty Registry. So from, from that data, um, which began in 1998, we were able to collect sufficient information such that when in 2005-06, when Michelle Dalsey, who's one of the professors in the department, did a PhD, it meant we were able to clean the data, uh, really identify which are the important things and create a very high fidelity collection of, of uh, evidence. And since that time, we have been able to give answers to questions that relate to prognosis, to care, to prosthetic design, to the economics of what we do, to the justification, and now even to the gender basis of what we're doing and why we're doing it. So this level of data has opened doors to a whole spectrum of questions that one would not have initially thought was possible when you started out. But what it did was it invited interest from so many different other people that made me aware of the interplay between one discipline and the next and how together this multidisciplinary approach based on the available evidence could really drive better research. Yeah, well, I did want to talk to you a little bit later about multidisciplinary research, but I might just ask about it now. I mean, when you've got a research question, how important is it for you as a surgeon or a clinician researcher to work with people like statisticians, epidemiologists, health economists, etc.? How, you know, you can't answer everything on your own, I assume. Sure. So I think the most important thing is, no, you can't answer everything on your own. And to get the best answer, you've got to get the best people in. You've got to get the experts in. And these days to make um, a significant impact, you really have to be able to provide the evidence to show has intervention A been better than intervention B? And does intervention A cost more or less than intervention B? And that means you need people who've got a significant skill in analyzing data, our statisticians, and we need to have considerable input from our health economists who will be able to measure the impact of care on a patient's outcome. Our role is not to perform the intervention but to collect data on the outcome for a period of time because it's the change in the outcome scores that give the, the gain or loss that patients experience which then justifies whether the money spent on that intervention was worthwhile or not. At the end of the day, it really is part of the formula of what do patients value the most? What you do is you measure the quality of the impact of the intervention against the cost of providing that quality. So value is actually the quality on the cost. So just manipulating cost alone may not have any impact on the value, but changing the, the strength of the quality of what you're doing has a direct impact on value. And so... As the world moves towards a value-based uh, system of care, it's really important that we focus on things like quality and cost. And, and those require very specific input from a whole raft of different types of researchers if we are to give it the level of sophisticated viewing it, it needs. Mm, so, I mean, in order to, say, introduce a new um, intervention, you need to do something like a clinical trial. And along the way, you work with people like statisticians and health economists okay. to measure value and try and use that information to inform policymakers that you have some alternative that does provide a value-based care approach. But in order to get there, you need to do something like a clinical trial. For example, 
um, the marker study, which you're involved in at the moment, the maximum acceptable risk of complication in total knee arthroplasty. There's also the just-in-time patient-specific bone tumour implants trial that you're working with, and I'm sure there's many others that you're working on at the moment and in the past along your career. What can you tell me that you've learned over your career about what is required to set up and complete a successful clinical trial? Yeah, I think the, the, the first and foremost is to know what the question is. Unless you know what the question is you're trying to solve and be able to clearly articulate it, it's very difficult to design a, something to test the veracity of that question. The, that question, let's say it has everything to do with treatment, we then need to know how do patients respond to that treatment? Do they value it? What do they want out of it? What do they see as the gains or losses, the pros or cons? And therefore, getting a patient's perspective, so qualitative research, is really important. Once you know what the patients want and you know what the question is, you then have to design the study to test it. And there are two ways of designing it. You can come up with a hypothesis, A is better than B, or you can have a null hypothesis. A is just the same as B, but I'm going to design the study to defeat the null hypothesis. And to do that means you've got to have sufficient numbers. So where do I get these patients from? I have to start networking with people who might do this intervention, build a network, so they understand what you're trying to do, the purpose of what you're trying to do, the rationale behind you, what to do, and create a research environment that allows the, the, the conduct of the experiment. I then have to bring in the biostatisticians to make sure that the numbers I've brought into the studies are actually the numbers that will demonstrate a difference. You know, there's nothing worse than a study that lacks sufficient statistical power to prove that A is better than B. Otherwise, it may be just a weak um, set of, of, of participants, so-called a type 2 error. Uh, once you have that information, it's about articulating the whole plan in a way that makes sense. And the person it should make sense to the most is the funder. Because the funder is the one who decides, yes, this grant is meaningful, impactful, people stand to gain from it, things will change, wastage will be identified and perhaps even removed from our armamentarium and ultimately patients stand to benefit in terms of outcomes. And if you can articulate all these things in a way that makes sense clearly and very, very simply, you're more likely to have a successful grant. Wow, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> Um, so Australia is unique to other countries in the world in that our research is self-regulated. There is no such thing as a government office of research integrity that it explores cases of research misconduct such as plagiarism. Given there are major financial and career incentives to researchers who publish prolifically in high-impact journals, this creates the conditions for researchers that might perform fraudulent research to try and get their work out there. Do you worry that without research integrity, the general public could start to ignore medical research and not believe science like we've seen with anti-vaxxers? So research integrity or academic integrity is the same as professional integrity. And being a member of a profession means you self-regulate against a standard because professions should regulate themselves. They should not have someone standing over them with a big stick saying, 
I'm watching you. That's the whole idea of being professional. And academicians are no different. They're professional. They, I save lives operating on people. Researchers save lives on understanding why people are affected by conditions. So we're, we're all professional. And, and I think in Australia, the whole sense of self-regulation is an important one. It's, it's cultural. Our professions take themselves really seriously. That's why you have the, what do they call it? Certified accountants. Because their society of accountants, association, manages them. The Australian Orthopedic Association manages the profession of orthopedics and so on and so forth. So the way we do that in academia is that when the research is produced, all of that is submitted to peer review prior to publication. And by and large, 99% and more is credible work, high integrity. And it is only one or two that are not. And they are found out by the systems that are put in place. For example, the, the, I authenticate the, the programs now that look for plagiarism can easily identify those sorts of things. The reviewers who review journals are exceptionally good. They're sent to the expert panels. So they will say, this is unlikely. Show us the evidence. And the production of that evidence is, is what we, we would look at. But from time to time, there is no question some very, very big ticket abnormalities are identified. And perhaps it's a shame it wasn't identified right at the start, but eventually it's identified. And when it's eventually found, appropriate steps are then taken. I think it would be naive to think that there will be no one doing that in any profession in history. The good thing is in Australia we do actually have a level of integrity through all professions including academia that help maintain the very very high standards of Australian research that's being done. So in addition to peer review there's of course ethics um, and that often would come before peer review because you would obviously need ethical approval to start doing some sort of research um, do you sit on any ethics committees? Yes, uh, yes, I do. I sit on the university ethics committee. And it's, it's about understanding what's the purpose of an ethics committee. The ethics committee is there to protect the rights of the patient. It's not there to, to go through the absolute critique of the methodology. Knowing the methodology helps because what you don't want to do is subject the patient to a totally nonsensical study or a study that has no feasibility for success or completion. But the whole idea of ethical review is to make sure that what you do in the name of science is done in a way that has the patient's best interest at heart, the beneficence, as it were, rather than maleficence that uh, is associated with some types of research. So you're a prolific publisher yourself. I counted them individually one by one. You've got 631 publications. What is the one piece of advice you would give for someone who wants to get published in a medical journal? It, it, it really depends on the person. But if you want to get published and you want to learn as you get published and you want to benefit from that learning, I would work with a group. Doing something on your own uh, has a less likely chance of being high quality 
has a less likely chance of being completed and therefore has a less likely chance of being published in any article in journal that people would care to read. Now that might seem somewhat strident a comment to make, but if you work with teams, they have they bring experience, they bring knowledge, they bring a range of skills. And as a researcher who's not done it before, but to join that, you expose yourself therefore to a spectrum of capabilities. And other than learning the skills, you you can get inspired by some of the people there. You can have your the bow of your, your boat turned in certain directions because of that. And that could be something that who knew would ever exist. And you could end up even chair of surgery for all you know. You know? It's just one of those things and you, you have to be open to it. And there's this old saying, you know, uh, um, go with the winners. So last question. The value of medical students is that we are, quote, a workforce of intelligent and hardworking people who can provide our professors with free research output, close quote. So what would your suggestion be for medical students who want to get involved in research other than asking to be paid for it? Well, first of all, that, that, that passage that you wrote, quote, unquote, is, is horribly cynical. And disappointed if given by a high-level academic. But notwithstanding that, I understand that the point they're trying to make. And that view is, is one of many views that academics would have of students. In, in the 25 or 30 years that I've been doing academics, the greatest joy of mine has been to work with students. And that means someone who hasn't quite made it yet. They're a student of medicine, they're a student of science, they're a student of engineering, they're students of research, they're a candidate, a student. And so what that means is, one, I can mould them. Two, they can ask me the extremely naive question that sparks a thought because they're not biased by prior reading or commitment. They don't have the cognitive dissonance that well-established people may express or display. They innocently ask a question. And so many times I've had great work being done by students simply because they did it. One of the great joys for me is if I can really impress on my students the value of what they're doing for themselves and the community, they will one day go on and take my place. Because my job is to find replacements for myself all the time to be better than me at what I do because now they've got more technology, more resources, and they should be better than me for what they do. And, and that is vindication enough for the time spent with my students. And I would, dare, I would dare say that lots of academics would feel that way because they do devote a considerable amount of time to them. That said, it's also really important that students, if they're employed to do something, should be paid to do something. I've, I fully support that. And what we try and do is we recognise that when students come here, some of them do need financial support because they're living on their own, they've got obligations, etc. And so we try and find work for them to do that gets paid at a a rate that is recognised as part of the industrial agreements. And we, we would accord them time that is not competitive with their research time, so they can do both and not feel stressed by either. But I definitely think that if students do things outside their work, at least in our research team, what we've tried to do is pay them 
uh, where we can for doing that work for us. Fantastic. Professor Chung, thank you so much for your time. It's always inspiring having a chat to you and thanks for being on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure and uh, as always, uh, testing me with some some very keen questions. Thanks, Professor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at SomaGradGroup or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.